I just think we ought to wait till after you graduate. I don't. It's only a month. Janet, a month. Please. Sorry. I personally consider us engaged as of now. Congratulations. David, no. Look, you can say yes in a taxi. I have a 2.30 appointment I'm staying right here. Oh? Afraid you'll say yes? I'll see you tonight at Brandon's Park. Okay. You can say yes, sir, just as well as in a taxi. Goodbye, darling. Bye. That's the last time she ever saw him alive. And that's the last time you'll ever see him alive. Welcome to another episode of Foreign Correspondence Deeper into Hitchcock podcast. My name is Michał Leszczyk and I'm joined as always by my co-host Sebastian Smoliński. Hello. Uh, welcome to episode number 34 of our podcast in which we discuss every single film in Hitchcock's uh, filmography and we are making our way through this uh, glorious filmography and this uh, episode we will discuss Rope, a film that Alfred Hitchcock made in 1948 the first film he made after his partnership with uh, David Oselsnik. Last time we discussed the final unfortunate entry in that uh, Hitchcock-Selsnik um, cycle, which was the Paradigm case. And now we are about to discuss a film that was special in many ways in uh, Hitchcock's filmography. This is his first color film. This is his first and only film made only with uh, long takes, and we'll definitely discuss this technical aspect of it. And it's also a film in which the homosexual theme, which is often buried in Hitchcock films, is pretty much on the surface, as much uh, on the surface as the 1948 mores and censorship would allow. But these are only several things that uh, are uh, exceptional about this film, especially if you remember, it was made in 1948. This is a film, I would say, that uh, holds a special fascination for many people, even among, I think, Hitchcock scholars. It's a film that has many secrets that that simply you cannot dismiss, even though I think it's not a perfect film for many reasons. Mm -hmm. However, this strange mixture of this sort of repressed homosexual theme, this striking technique, which was almost avant-garde at the time. I mean, it's really difficult to imagine a film like this even today, much less in 1948. Um, and also strange casting choices that we'll definitely discuss. And the, the connection to real-life murders um, committed by Leopold and Loeb in mid-1920s in Chicago, in and around Chicago, um, make this into a very, very strange uh, cocktail, I would say. And um, I'm looking forward to discussing this film because it's impossible to dismiss it. It's a thriller. It's a uh, murder mystery. Uh, the plot is quite simple. It's taken from a play, a 1929 play by Patrick Hamilton. And what we see is a story that takes place on a single afternoon into a night in New York City in this uh, very fancy uh, pad, <laughs> an apartment with a gorgeous killer view of Manhattan. And uh, we see two uh, men, Brandon and Philip, 
Brandon played by John Dahl and Philip played by Farley Granger, who in the very first seconds after the opening credits commit a murder. They strangle a man to death, they strangle their friend actually, David Kentley, to death, they put his body in a trunk and they begin a party in which the guests of honor are the parents of the killed boy and his ex uh, fiance no his current fiance sorry his current uh, fiance and basically they give this very perverse dinner party uh, to test their uh, metal and to test their philosophical thesis uh, which is uh, a, a mixture of dostoevsky and nietzsche about uh, the ubermensch the superior beings the men who are allowed to step outside of the boundaries of traditional morality this killing in a word is an aesthetic act of proving their own superiority to other human beings and this teaching uh, was given to them by the character played by James Stewart, mm. Rupert, who is their <laughs> philosophy, philosophy teacher, I guess. <laughs> um, the film takes place in real time. So the, the 80 minutes of the film is the 80 minutes of, of the action, although some people say it's a little bit com more complicated than that. But the main thing, and this is the last thing I'm saying in this introduction, is that it is made in a series of unbroken long takes some of which are edited in a way which suggests even more continuity than there uh, really is so we have basically 10 10 shots in the entire in the entire film where do we start when did you see this film first like mm -hmm. what was your first experience of 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 this strange artifact named rope so yeah um... I saw it as a, as a teenager, and I think I took it pretty in a pretty straightforward way. Uh, maybe I sensed some homosexual subtext. Maybe I'm not sure. Uh, certainly, when I watched it for the second time with my wife a few years ago, um, I discovered more. And now, when I watched it only third time, I mean. Uh, Neil Badmington, uh, Professor Neil, Neil Badmington, who wrote the whole book about rope, he was Perpetu watching this movie. Perpetual Movement, that's the book that, yes, that, that and he we, wrote. We mm -hmm. send greetings to him. Uh, he watched rope uh, every day for a year. It's also <laughs> possible. But no, I must say it's, 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 it's pure pleasure. And I think uh, where we should start is the, the fact that this is the film that really mm, is perfect for our contemporary media environment, when you can freeze frame separate every frame you can study restudy rewatch uh, the film like at infinity we could say right so it, it's a really movie that uh, is fun to scrutinize this is something that really wasn't ac accessible for previous hitchcock scholars and for example when you read very interesting essay by peter wallen rope free hypothesis he mm, repeats this uh, common knowledge that the movie is made um only of long takes which are hidden the, and the cuts are hidden right and and we know that only part of the cuts as you mentioned are hidden only um some of them are some, some takes um, end on on the back of a, of a character uh, and then the new take starts kind of like seamlessly or 
pseudo seamlessly weaving the, uh, the the visual storytelling, but actually there are just you know ordinary cuts. And but the movie is so immersive in in this very funny way. Uh, of course, you know you may say although it's it's rarely said about rope, but it is a of course, theatrical movie based on a, on, a, on a play and and set in a, in a single uh, single apartment, but um, because of this technical extravaganza and showmanship that Hitchcock showed, you know, it's really discussed as a you know this so-called theatrical movie. Uh, but it's so immers- immersive thanks to these uh, theatrical qualities, uh, vivid characters, uh, very clear plot, ver- very funny pieces of dialogue. It's a very funny movie. I uh, this is something I, for example, discover now when I rewatch it. For the, uh, it's really funny, and the main two protagonists, they are many things, but they are also a bit like Pinky and the Brain from the cartoon. <laughs> Uh, cartoon characters, you know, there's some there's this very funny vibe between them, you know, just discussing the murder and so on. Uh, so I think it's also one of the best comedies Hitchcock made. I think. Hmm. Oh, that's, that's that's interesting. I I should probably say I saw this film quite early. Um, there was this briefly in Poland that there was this cable TV called. Uh, RTL Seven, <laughs> and oh, yeah. they they showed it late at night. And, uh, mm, well, first of all, I, I saw it many, many, many times because mm. I was very interested in this technical aspect of it. I was always very interested in long, long takes. Mm-hmm. And, and it was short, so I mean, relatively short, so you could sort of mm-hmm. sneak in a quick VHS repeat uh, after you came back from school and before you had your <laughs> dinner. So I, I, I watched it many times. So I, I know it pretty well, although I, I did rewatch it for this occasion. Um, Probably because of my sexual identity, I picked up quite early that you know that there's something going on here between those men. But actually, when I when I watch it now, I think that it's it's so funny. I mean, the the the, the whole notion when you read about it, they were making the film and the screenwriter Arthur Lawrence, uh, who worked on the adaptation of the play after Hume Cronin, whom we saw as an actor in Shadow of a Doubt, prepared a treatment. They never discussed uh, homosexuality like outright. They always referred to it as it. So, but it's so funny to watch it today because um, the film is very confused about the the, the treatment of those characters. Mm-hmm. Let's say right. But it's funny that you mentioned that it's a comedy because on some level I think it is. It's um, I would say Oscar Wildean comedy because it's an it's an amoral film, right? With dandies. With dandies, exactly. <laughs> there are two dandies. They are they are immaculately dressed. You know those characters of Brandon and Philip, and in this long tradition that probably the best book to read about this is, is Camille Paglia and uh, sexual persona in this long, long tradition of those like perfectly coiffed and perfectly uh, dressed uh, dandy characters who are really outside of uh, traditional morality right I, I think those characters come straight out of this tradition even though of course it, it was based on an actual case however according to this making of a video mm. They, they never discussed the real case when they were making the film. It wouldn't be until much later with the Tom Kalin film mm. called Swoon that they really would yeah. delve into this. And that, that was, by the way, a very, very disturbing and very mm. good film. But uh, this, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's so funny because they cannot, of course, they cannot express the 
the the theme outrightly but on the other hand you have all those signifiers of them being dandies of them being very closely to close to one another in the frame they are constantly brandon and philip they are placed much closer to, towards each other than two straight characters at the time uh, would be would be placed so that's one signifier that they are close and we'll probably discuss even more but this comedy aspect of it i mean it's so disturbing because when i was watching this film now i mean this is a really shocking and gruesome premise that you are still after all those years maybe i was even more shocked by this film now than mm. i was in back in the day because you start off with this murder you see the face of a strangled man in 1948 mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you present you know this dinner of his casket by the by, basically because brandon has this uh, uh, brilliant idea of you know putting the food actually on top of the casket um and and you have the parents I, I, I actually only the father comes to the to the party you have the father of, of the young man and then you have this whole discussion of of, of exterminating people th three years after second world war and that actually the name hitler is mentioned so i would say that this sort of air of mass extermination is still fresh in the culture and here is hitchcock making this totally amoral twisted ghoulish tale and of course, you, you know, th there are precedents to that. You could watch Frank Capra's Arsenic and Old Lace and you will have two charming ladies, you know, who basically are also, you know, burying... But they are helping people. Yeah, but they are helping <laughs> you. But, 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 you know, you should, some of, somebody should make like a video essay and compare, mm -hmm. you know, their mm -hmm. justifications for helping people and, you know, the, the, the justification that Rupert gives for his philosophy, you know, of, of getting rid of people that you don't need. I mean, this was 1944, 48. So, th so this is, I think, incredible that Hitchcock was able to pull this off, and I think that he was deeply fascinated by those characters of those dandies of of, mm. of Rupert. Oh, sorry, of uh, of Philip and and Brandon, and. Um, but Rupert was mm -hmm. also supposed to be a kind of like this dandy figure. Yes, in he some was, versions uh, of the script and different casting, Cary Grant. In that role, yes, would bring another vibe like this. Uh, Cary Grant was uh, discussed, and Montgomery Clift was discussed mm. for the role of Rupert, the teacher. So, I mean, in the play originally, he was also homosexual, and there was this uh, suggestion that that he had an affair at least with one of those guys. So that probably Brandon. Probably <laughs> maybe, maybe. But but the the the, the thing is that. Um, that that would also you know play into this theme that he somehow. Uh, seduced them or, or contaminated them with this sick philosophy and yet there's this absolute there's one force in the film i think that that works absolutely against this whole contemplation of the dandy which is casting of james stewart because if you imagine somebody let, let's imagine the same movie with james mason in the role of of james stewart right who shows up being a dandy himself and signifying some sort of uh, sexual ambiguity and predatory nature and this whole speech about you know inferior humans superior humans this whole Nietzsche you know it's comedy again it would be it would be high black comedy but because Stuart is so I would say flamboyantly miscast I mean it's it's an obvious miscasting that that he simply is not 
either homosexual or a philosophy professor yeah, or capable or, of or capable devising of, this theory of exactly of, of treating anyone with you know with anything less that than total courtesy he will play in harvey two years later uh, harvey two <laughs> years later rabbit. and two years before yeah. he was you know uh, bailey Suicidal. in yeah. in 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 it's a wonderful world when he uh, mm. it's a yeah it's a wonderful frank capra's film uh, where he was the nicest guy in the world uh, and actually you know maybe he was too nice for his own good but um so i, I think this crucial piece of inspired miscasting i would say that it it for me it, it destroys the film as an original conception of adapting the play mm. because because uh, james stewart discussed in this role this is no longer rope as it was on mm -hmm. the stage mm -hmm. it's something else and now the question is what is it then right what is it if you have this sort of the moral center of American post-war cinema, James Stewart, cast in this character of Rupert. What does it do to the story? Because, I mean, look at those guys. Like, you know, Farley Granger, John Dahl. Farley Granger, I think, openly bisexual. John Dahl, mm -hmm. there was a rumor that he was homosexual. Yeah. And just look at them and look at Rupert. I mean, they are not... How how did those lesson even, lessons even look like? You know that Rupert gave them back in the day. So I, I think uh, it's it's an it's an interesting case, and um, and this is something that destroys this uh, high mm -hmm. black mm -hmm. comedy mm -hmm. feeling that otherwise with James Mason or Charles Lawton or any of those campy you know British actors, uh, it it would have been there. So. It's it's I think the the film has many contradictory impulses. That's a that's a wonderful point. And just imagine when we speak about video essays, imagine Cary Grant juxtaposed Cary Grant from Arsenic and Old Lace with his eyes popping out of his sockets, yes. right? <laughs> yes. Uh, Recut with Brandon and Philip, you know, towards yes. the end. So yeah, yes. you're totally right. But there is there is one thing that I I sense makes James Stewart's role a bit more credible than it would have been in the moment of Mr. Smith goes to Washington, right? Mm. It's, of course, it's the, the war experience. And it's it's a bit funny that Notorious, we consider a masterpiece, and it's it was a very topical movie. Uh, the Paradigm case was a, was a failure because it was it didn't have any connection with mm. what was happening in post-war uh, world. And now again, as, as, as we mentioned, there is this it's in a way you could stretch and say that it's kind of a like post-Holocaust art in a mm -hmm. way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, made with this um, this sensibility and this acknowledgement of this of this mass destruction and of this human. And we impulses. know that Hitchcock was instrumental in cutting exactly. some of the footage exactly. from dead camps. So if you uh, if you look at Rope as a post-Holocaust mm -hmm. film then I think you, you're you on to something. Definitely, yeah. uh, definitely. So so uh, there is this this element, which I think is still powerful. Um, but I think that you mentioned the, the first cut, which I think that's the moment I really paid attention to it, to it this time. The first cut, so the, the opening credits, the view of the street, the camera comes to the curtains. And this amazing cut, exactly. When I was thinking about all the other movies I saw from... 1948 or before, that you cut from the curtains to the close-up of a man who is uh, strangled by now. It, it's a it's an amazing cut. I think mm -hmm. for that 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 one cut, 
makes it a really gruesome, ghoulish tale, as you mentioned, and very powerful. I just imagine sitting in a theater and, you know, survive, let's say, going two minutes through the opening credits and then, bah, you have this close-up, which was, uh, apparently, Hitchcock insisted on that close-up. Mm-hmm. For me, that makes it very powerful. And, of course, I treat this movie as a comedy, but it's, it is it is very disturbing mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. But when we discuss Stuart and what he brings to this, uh, to this movie, of course, um, I think he's pretty good in that role. Uh, but I think the the finale suffers. I mean, this moment because, as as many uh, commentators point out, he's somehow implicated in this murder on the level of you know uh, incept inception, incepting mm-hmm. the idea right to this to these two young boys. It's uh, it's almost like you know like like kind of like um, Elephant by Gaston Sand. Right? Uh-huh. I mean, a, a bit like you have this feeling like oh, let's do something immoral. And by the way, this this very concept, I think it's it's worthy of uh, Lars von Trier, like this concept mm. of you know strangling the guy and making a feast mm-hmm. on his carcass. Or yeah, in, that's the, uh, the the house that Jack built. Exactly, uh, exactly. Is, is a late iteration of this amoral play. Yeah. But uh, you know the problem is, and it's a fascinating problem because it touches upon really many many twentieth century tropes, is that as it's played by James Stewart, the whole point of Rupert inspiring mm. to do this. It really doesn't work because the question is when Stuart um, gives, you know, there's, there's a long conversation with the father, wonderfully played by Sir yes. Hardwick, and, you know, uh, Rupert gives him, uh, lays out his philosophy of, you know, like murder should be allowed. You don't believe him for a second because it, it really, I mean, he plays it as a party joke. Mm. And uh, when the father says, you surely, you're, you are not serious, right? You, This is a joke, you are pulling my leg. Um, Stuart says, oh, no, no, I, I'm very serious, but you don't feel the mm-hmm, seriousness. Mm-hmm. And had, again, and this is the last time I will make this point, had mm-hmm. it been James Mason, you would feel that he really mean, means it. Mm-hmm. And then it would have been only logical that the boys took that lesson seriously and they that they actually took it to the to its logical mm-hmm. conclusion but here i mean they really i mean on some level it may be a cosmic comedy because it looks like those two guys simply mistook a joke for a philosophy you yes know? yes and that's that's why there's there's not there's no flow of this dark and twisted philosophy from rupert to the guys because i think it's impossible to assume that James Stewart is serious when he says all of this stuff. It really sounds like uh, sounds like one more joke. He enters the room and he's jokingly, you know, uh, undermining the conventions of uh, polite society. He says, "Oh, ni- nice to see you." Why, right? Mm. And uh, uh, he, he makes those jokes yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, are yeah, those yeah. little barbs, yes. at, you know, the conventions of polite society. He's a trickster. Of he's sorts. a trickster, but but. Yes. They are very light, you know. They are like they are tic- they are just tickling the society. And when he when he when he explains his philosophy, it's it's exactly that. It feels like it's just one more joke that he's very very eager to retract when the father is actually offended. You're right. Uh, just two arguments that could somehow um, defend Stewart. One thing, as I mentioned, this, 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 the post-war quality of James Stewart, who apparently. Um, when you dig into production history, he was he, he wanted these darker roles because he saw a lot during the war. That's, so, so apparently we have a different star than the 1930s or even the Philadelphia story, James Stewart. Right? So that's one thing. Maybe 
it somehow appealed to him. But um, the other thing is, I, I think Rope is to a large extent a film about youth, you know, about um, young energy, with, which is dark energy here. This is mm. like, like the, we usually associate even young people in Hitchcock's films with some kind of mm. innocent, young and innocent, right? Mm. No, young and very <laughs> diabolical here. Right. So in this way, we have some kind of texture of the past here, right? He was their teacher a few years ago. Maybe there was something. Now he's older. Now he's he has a limp. He's one of the... He actually, when we look at it from the eugenics perspective, he, he is to be exterminated mm -hmm. because he's not mm -hmm. perfect. He doesn't have a perfect body right, as right, they right. do. Right? That's, that's, that's he doesn't look as superhuman as they because exactly. they are both but lean, maybe, lean, young and strong. But maybe he used to. Mm -hmm. So maybe... I, I don't... I'm not saying that it's a very convincing argument, to be honest, but maybe he used to be this dashing dandy. Mm -hmm. But now mm -hmm. he's older. He's Oh, maybe I will marry this. Um, mm. I will marry this maid. You know, like that's the one of the most stupid lines in the movie. I mean, <laughs> why would James Stewart want want or or decide to marry uh, this maid? Well, I I, I would marry her. I mean, she's <laughs> fantastic. You know? <laughs> no, she's, she's great. But she's you know. the uh, she's the the Thelma Ritter of this piece. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Evanson, and it's interesting because in the in the book you mentioned uh, perpetual movement. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we, we, you, actually, you can, by Professor uh, Neil Badminton, you can find this tidbit that um, this this role of this of this maid, uh, she, the actress was actually working with a woman who was kind of a housekeeper for Hitchcock. Mm, yeah. So she trained her. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she trained her how to, you know, sort of how to be helpful at the party. And apparently, it was so convincing that other actors. On the set, treated her as a maid, basically. That that you know, she she really was like treated as a maid, even though she was a, an actress playing a very effective, effective role. But I, uh, as I said, I would marry her because she's the she's the she's the reality principle in the film, mm -hmm. just like Thelma Ritter is this voice of folk reason in uh, in Rare Window, uh, and apparently she's a very good cook as well. However, uh, yeah, I mean. Uh, you know how how can you imagine a marriage of this dark philosopher yeah, with, exactly. with this with this maid? That's that's another another question. But for me, there are some elements here that I mean, two elements fascinate me now, especially after mm -hmm. all our discussions. Exactly. Because you know we exactly. we really went deeper into Hitchcock, as it were. Mm -hmm. First of all, it struck me after all those years. First of all, Hitchcock's love of theater because he spent so many hours in London when he was a young man, uh, simply watching plays, right? And this is something John Russell, Russell Taylor mm -hmm. in his book on Hitchcock really stresses that he was an avid watcher of plays, that he loved theater and uh, until the end of his life, that he loved this form of a sort of enclosed play. And this is exactly this. Well-made play. Well-made play. So he uh, finally, Hitchcock simply recreates this uh, sensation of being in a theater, of course, with purely filmic means, mm -hmm. because the film doesn't feel like theater, really, mm -hmm. because we, we get all the close-ups. And However, I think the, his love of theater is, is uh, foundational for this piece. And the second thing is the love of giving parties, because, you know, as we wrote, uh, as we uh, read so much about Hitchcock, mm -hmm. he was a great ent entertainer. Everybody says... Bon vivant. Bon vivant, and, but also a domesticated one, because he, he had the ho home in Bel Air, and he loved to entertain people whom he worked with. He was f wonderful, uh, in, you know, giving food, a drink, and he loved parties. So if you remember that, I think it's also telling 
that this whole party here, I think, and you know, giving a party, giving a party with a theme, I think this is something that we stumbled upon repeatedly in mm -hmm. our readings of Hitchcock. And I think here he probably identifies with those two guys because they want to give this perfect party, even though it's a twisted one, mm -hmm. it's supposed to be perfect, even with an, with an altar. So I think Hitchcock is very close here to things that he personally found very exciting. Theater, giving parties, mm. giving form to chaos, elegance, wit, beauty. The, you know, the, the, the guys are, the, the whole place is filled with uh, paintings, you know, with uh, modern drawings. And I think, you know, this is something very, and of course, full control, because it was a fully controlled uh, environment. So I find this fascinating that yeah. probably Hitchcock in his temperament was closest to those two to those two guys. And I'm not even going into like sexual speculation. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that throwing a party with a sophisticated theme, perfect drink and good food was something that he himself uh, very much enjoyed. Uh, so, yeah, I think that he he enjoys the party in Rome. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. And uh let's mention that it's it's his first independent production so like it's hitchcock finally doing what he would like to do and what he does he he gives a party um and also i think there is this great promotional photo with hitchcock in the chest mm -hmm. and this uh, and all, and the three guys around him right but i think it's precisely that of course when brandon says i'm a perfectionist i always plan my parties so this is this part of hitchcock the you know the, the master of the ceremony and the the controlling uh ego let's say but there's also this part of anxiety which philip embodies right he's anxious about everything so it's like hitchcock split into these two characters and yeah, perfect. Right. I, I like I like this. And uh, by the way, uh, the video essay that we are proposing uh, just expanded in my mind because I thought there's one more one other film that should be cut into this essay about post-Holocaust confusion, mm -hmm. uh, Monsieur Verdoux, in yeah. which uh, Chaplin gives an impassioned speech about you know who should live and who not, you know I, I'm not a, I'm not a really a criminal because I was only killing those widows or something like that. So and this yeah. is 1947. So you have you have exactly that moment, and the speech that Chaplin gives in that film could be intercut uh, with with the speech that James Stewart gives. But I I, I fully agree, and um, I think that uh, for Hitchcock, the something that we probably as Eastern Europeans we probably miss a lot of it, mm -hmm. but the translation from the British context into American context is something that Arthur Lawrence supposedly he was a lover of Farley Granger. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, so, so there's another layer, but he um, mentions that it was the biggest challenge was to change the language from a language that was used on the London stage to a convincingly American idiom. For example, many instances of my dear boy were mm. uh, crossed out because they were too overtly homosexual in uh, mm -hmm. American context. But one thing that really fascinates me is that if you just if you forget everything about this movie that you knew before, if you just try to look at it for the first time, yesterday when I was rewatching mm -hmm. it, I felt exactly this, like, wow. My first thought was, this is a document of a totally bygone era. I mean, who gives this kind of parties anymore? I mean, do you remember the 
original theme of the party that was supposed to be it was about looking at those first editions <laughs> you know they have a pile of first editions old books mm. basically and the party was supposed to be this you know that mm -hmm. the, fa the father of david and others will come here and farewell party because they were leaving yeah that, that, that's connecticut i think that's later but he says that mm. originally it was to look at the first yeah. editions right so what kind of a world are we in i mean yeah. this is very precise this is the world of white Protestant elite in, let's say, 19th and early 20th century that, you know, those names, Brandon, you know, uh, David, David Kentley, you know, I mean, it's all very, very, very precisely recreating this salon, as it were, mm. this sort of elite gathering. Uh, I love the character of um, John Chandler, who she's, plays she's uh, plays the woman here, and she she comes in, and you know you you can feel her this very specific mix of refinement, you know, this sort of New York Algonquin wit. She's like you know Dorothy Parker. She's you know she bur burst into and she's like five quips, you know, in in a row, and they're all funny, and she's uh -huh, fantastic, uh -huh. and she and I love that she 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 writes this little column, little column for yeah. for a small magazine called Allure, <laughs> which which by the way reappears in Vertigo because you can see uh, Allure magazine which never existed uh, on on the desk at um, Barbara mm. Barbara Belgedes place. But, you know, this is exactly this rarefied, beautiful world. These people are perfectly coiffed and perfectly dressed. I love this English lady, you know, mm. Constance Collier, who worked with Hitchcock. She, I think, wrote the play Downhill, right? That she, but, but, you know, this is, this is gone. I mean, mm. th there's nothing left of, of this world. I mean, uh, there's, there are no parties like this anymore. And I'm not saying this in a nostalgic mode. I'm saying that this particular setting of a New York loft and those guys who apparently both went to Harvard, I think, right? Those, mm. And, you know, they are those dandies, esthetes, you know, they're on the cutting edge of, let's say, modern art. They're expanding the canon at this time. This is the time where Pollock was making mm. his paintings and stuff. I think this is a, a, a document of its era. And imagine how they were discussing this this piece when they were shooting it, you know? Like, at, at the same time, you know, those modern... Probably what I'm trying to say is that this is a deeply modernist film. It's mm -hmm. of that moment, but it shows a group and a social strata that will undergo severe turmoil in the next decades. The 50s, mm -hmm. the 60s will destroy the 60s, it. Yeah. The 60s will destroy it forever. But this is an interesting moment when we can enter a party like this and look at the first editions, you know? Exactly, but, but there is, um, in contemporary cinema, for example, I think Ruben Ostlund in his overappreciated movies is mm. trying to somehow, but of course with this moral <laughs> angle that, I mean, Hitchcock is too smart to just make no, fun no, of no, these no, characters, right? No, 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 you're wrong. I'm sorry, you're wrong. Ruben Ostlund is fascinated by the world of money. This is not a world of money. They're, they, they're not necessarily all wealthy, mm -hmm. but they're all in the world of university-minded elite of the time this is the mm -hmm. difference i'm not mm -hmm. saying that these mm -hmm. are rich people uh -huh. because probably there's some difference between mm -hmm. them but i'm saying that they all pay respect to a certain form mm -hmm. of being mm -hmm. of culture mm -hmm. and um i don't know for me the female character is especially you know that you know she's writing for this little progressive magazine you know <laughs> it's it's yeah it's, it's pretty you know. amazing but uh, let us remember that the the jewish part of their of 
of the identity of the the original murderers that yeah. of this case was uh, erased but that could it Leopold actually and Love yeah it actually raised yeah. suspicion mm-hmm. of some moguls in in hollywood uh, they were, they yeah, were Warner afraid. received telegrams, you know. They were afraid was, yeah, of, exactly. of uh, resurrecting anti-Semitic stereotypes, especially since the, the victim was actually a child in the, mm-hmm. in, the, in the original case. So I'm not surprised that they were, they were afraid. But here, I think this is a very waspish, mm-hmm. uh, waspish yes, work. Yes. Like Hardwick and, you know, the, the old lady. <laughs> she's, yeah, she's, exactly. She's um, like from Rebecca. Did you, you know. ever meet Maria Kornatowska, the famous Polish Just film once. critic? Just once, yes. She was exactly, I saw her. exactly like that. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, interestingly, and this is something I didn't know, to be honest. I don't know if Patrick McGilligan describes it, but and if it's true at all, but Peter Wallen writes that Hitchcock was a bully, that he was not bullied in school, that he was a bully. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not accurate, and maybe, maybe McGilligan gets the better because he McGilligan describes Hitchcock as a shy child, mm. right, and so on. But Peter Wallen describes in the context of Rope, he writes about English school system, mm. how it kind of makes this. Once again, if we are talking about the culture of the era, right, mm-hmm. this this and this aspect of bullying, apparently Wallen even goes as far as to interpret the disappointment of. Patrick Hamilton with the adaptation mm. as a kind of another prank, another practical joke by Hitchcock, uh, who was a bully and bullied Patrick Hamilton in a very indirect way. Mm. But but this is interesting. I didn't look at it from that perspective, but certainly I think this vibe is there. But I, I was thinking recently about the, the form and this Hitchcock, Hitchcock obsession with with long takes. And I think we we still often take Hitchcock out of context, right, of what was happening in world cinema in general. And I think in this case, um, I have this idea, maybe it was spelled out somewhere, that he's very much uh, up to date with what's happening in, in world cinema. Uh, I'm reading David Bordwell's On the History of Film Style mm-hmm. right now, and there is this you know, great chapter about Bazinian uh, theory of film style, evolution of language. And of course, we know that uh, Greg Toland, um, Orson Welles, William, William Wyler, uh, Italian neorealism. There was actually in the 40s, of course, we, in America, of course, we have film noir, shadows, and so on. And But actually in the 40s, you know, two years earlier, uh, William Wyler wins, right, for the best years. So we have this obsession. The best years of our yeah, lives. Yeah, maybe not so much with long takes, but certainly the focus, but also long takes, mm-hmm. right? So, so there is this interesting cultural moment when filmmakers somehow and film film critics see that as a, some kind of you know the next stage of the evolution and mm-hmm. something that makes movies more complicated of course in rope we don't have these these tableaus that maybe we can find in Wilder's films but certainly i think rope may be seen as exhibiting part of this this tradition oh let's experiment with this fluid movement with with a screen that you know the, the viewer can choose where of course, one looks at. Of course, at. And, and I would say even if it goes, of course it goes further because uh, the most ropian shot in Notorious is the key shot, of course, mm. because here, you know, the, the thing is, we know very well that, you know, this film consists of 10 takes and, uh, but when you're watching it, you, I mean, we are aware of it. I think we are, because we are Hitchcock buffs, mm-hmm. but it, there's so much, editing going mm-hmm. on in the frame you know the camera changes mm-hmm. positions we go from you know like a wider shot to a close-up 
it's editing is there it's just that there's no cutting so um, uh, and this is something that also when the film first opened many reviewers said oh this camera is is like a character in the story you know it's prowling it's looking it's peeking for me the most modern and uh, uh, shocking parts are where the camera is totally stationary and most of the action takes place out of the frame. Mm-hmm. For example, when the main conversation is uh, outside of the frame and we see in a very, 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 very long uh, stretch as the maid is, you know, uh, cleaning up the chest mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. she almost mm-hmm. opens it, right? Mm-hmm. But but you don't see the character speaking. You just see her making her rounds, you know, as she goes back to the kitchen, goes back to the tr- trunk, and goes back to the kitchen again. Uh, and in this moment, it's almost like like an early iteration of Michelle Haneke, you know, mm. like like those long enigmatic shots, you know, in which you simply are there, but you know that there's something sinister going on, but you are looking the other way. And this is, again, very modern. And if you think of this, I think the exhibit A in the case for Hitchcock as a great modernist of 20th century is this film because A, it's obsessed with form, it's obsessed with the marriage of form and content, it's obsessed with pushing the boundary of the form, just like James Joyce was obsessed with it when he wrote Ulysses, an 800 novel that was recounting single day, Mm. right? So uh, here is Hitchcock who is obsessed with the form and, you know, at the same time you have new abstractionist painting, you have Pollock. Imagine, you know, if you leave this apartment, the film was shot in California, of course, but, you know, if you leave this apartment, Mm -hmm. you enter the New York of the beatniks, you know, of those experiments of uh, actor studio and Monty Clift, you know, Mm -hmm. struggling with his identity and stuff. This is the the time and place that this film sort of sucks up. This is also, by the way, exactly the time and place and perhaps even a location of Rare Window because Rare Window Mm. takes place in Greenwich Village and you have this, you know, abstractionist sculptor, you know, doing her thing. Maybe even, you know, the boys and Jeff were were neighbors, you know, somewhere in, in Greenwich Village. So I think that Hitchcock was very much connected to this, um, modernist moment and, uh, and the film must have been quite shocking on every possible level. Like what happens in the film, the first shot you mentioned, mm-hmm. a dead man yeah, being strangled amazing, in our, amazing uh, cut, yeah. you know, in front of our eyes. And, um, and yet, <laughs> I don't know, there's something wrong with the film as well. I mean, um, does it really work? Like, yeah. are you really invested in this suspense? The word, sus- the word suspense actually is mentioned, right? Yes. It will yeah, give it yes, another dash yes. of suspense, and right? And the, the charm of Brandon is mentioned. Yeah. I think I was trying to... <laughs> charm. Uh, five <laughs> times at least. Yes. The word charm, right? Uh, the, I love when uh, Philip says, I suppose that's part of your charm, yes, in a way. Yes, that's, a, that's great. But so on the one hand, it's a, it's a modernist experimental film, we can say. But at, at the same time, it's... And it was always in Hitchcock. It's... It is old-fashioned in some ways, right? In the way you know the characters are introduced, right, well, one after another. Oh, a bit. Oh, now I'm I'm thinking about uh, Zbigniew Rybczyński's Tango, oh, right? Yes, yes, yes. One place or Sierra um, Nevada. By yeah, Steve exactly. Poole. So, yeah. so on the one hand, we ha- we have this, and also also uh, the question that the movie works. I think it's a crucial one because it's a pure pleasure, but maybe it's some kind of closer to like this guilty pleasure or like this. I don't know because. The, 
every line is juicy almost. Mm -hmm. And it's also connected with the anecdote, very funny one, by the way, that Hitchcock's uh, associate, Sidney Bernstein, told um, uh, the screenwriter, I think it was Arthur Lawrence, right? Or maybe some other collaborator. No, I think it was Lawrence who's credited that, oh, every line must be a masterpiece. You know, and of course, uh, Hitchcock then decided he won't, uh, you know, allow him that close to screenwriters. It's intimidating. Hitchcock Mm -hmm. was working on that film in a very different way, more relaxed, more easygoing, and so on. But it's like every line is juicy. Every line is uh, every line is supposedly you know meaningful. There was this, I think, not a very good one, the party by Sally Potter a few years ago, right? Oh my god! Uh, it was a terrible <laughs> film, like based on the same premise, but in no. in that film, I mean, similar similar premise, no murder, I think, involved. But the film in which in the course of the action, you know, some hidden uh, traumas or problems or infidelities arise, right? Um, so, you know, and, and but I, I think here it works, but for me, really, the, as I mentioned, the, the James Stewart towards the end doesn't work. I mean, the situation when he says, oh, how could you understand me this way? I think it doesn't work. It's, it's a bit stupid. Of course, we know it's like in gangster pictures of the 1930s. There must be they want crime without punishment and we of course know that punishment must come in 48 right but on the other hand like the the fervor that the moral fervor that james stewart enters t- towards the end uh, it kind of spoils all the fun that we had before well, but, but i think it's more complex first of all our video essay just got expanded again because uh, kind hearts and coronets is ma- was made oh. one year later and is even more immoral in which yeah. a character kills off half of his family and we are actually on his side for the most of the film so there's something to be said about this sort of mm-hmm. post holocaust amoral films you know mm-hmm. that that are dealing uh, like like monsieur verdu and this one and kind hearts but, uh, you know, the, the guy in Kind Hearts kills more people oh, than Brandon and Phil. Let's remember you know? Peter Loris, uh, The Lost One. The Lost One, uh, that's true. But he, he and the remake directed. of M was at the same mm-hmm. time. 51. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, the, the, the thing is, there's such a thing as the sort of um, well-made play uh, in this sort of uh, West End Broadway tradition uh, that uh, simply at that time was the chief expression of the, let's say, refined literary culture of uh, the English-speaking world, right? You have th- those plays that were made into movies, Philip Barry, uh, Philadelphia Story. You know, the, it was simply a, pl- a form of art that was at its absolute peak, mm-hmm. and it had its roots in I don't know, Shakespeare, Restoration Comedy, Oscar Wilde, whatever. But that was exactly where the best minds were to be found. And this is why, you know, Herman Mankowitz went to Hollywood, you know, because this was exactly where the brightest people and the most gifted mm-hmm. writers were, New York stage. And this, when you know, Arthur Lawrence, when he polished this script and when he Amer- Americanized it, of course, he gave it this polish, you know, mm-hmm. of this like perfectly arranged you know punchlines and the dialogue and it's all sparkling and it's basically you could you could have been watching this on broadway at that time right of course again this is a very cinematic film so i i'm not saying it's staging dial m for murder that's staging Mm, (laughs) but mm -hmm, this this isn't staging but you know i think the fascinating thing is that the form is really this is the exact moment when this form of a well-made play is creaking and it's 
breaking up because on the one hand it's so refined then on the other hand holocaust just happened on the other hand they cannot even discuss what the play is about because mm. those guys are sleeping with each other and you cannot mention this so you know it's it's creaking in its seams and you 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 can hear the creaking in this film because you can have those two guys you know uh, uh, after they kill you know the David and you know they're panting and you know it's like what did you feel? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's great. Like, it's so funny because because you, but you see that this this farm is about to change and of course Samuel Beckett will will dismantle it and Harold Pinter will bring it into it its absolute absurdist you know uh, and fashion. Sloth. So uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Even in like popular theater. Yeah. So but 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 here you know imagine like. What, what, what were the rehearsals like for this film? You know, imagine Farley Granger talking to, to John Dahl, you know, about like standing close to one another. It had to be an extremely sublimely awkward situation, I think. You could, you could probably make and a per play. And perverse on Hitchcock's and part. And perverse on yeah. Hitchcock's uh, part, exactly. So um, I, uh, I, I agree that at the end when James Stewart says, but there's society, Brandon, <laughs> you know, and they will judge you. Of course, yes, this is the voice of civilization, right? That, that of course, of course, we are on the side of law and order, of humanist values. Mm. Of course, we all are. But this is this voice sort of of society. But had this been a really perverse experiment in this Wildian irony, the film would have ended just like Kind Hearts ended. With, you know, the guy just finished writing his diary with, you know, admission of guilt of those eight murderers. And then he reminds, he's reminded that, oh, I left the memoir. You know, he basically at the end of Kind Hearts and Hornets, the guy is just about to get away with it. Mm -hmm. He leaves mm -hmm. the prison. He's exonerated. He's innocent. And he said, oh, but I wrote the memoir. The memoir. And then we see the memoir in his cell and we know, yes, the society will come mm. after him, but this is not part of the spectacle, right? Mm. It's outside mm. of the frame. And here, of course, it's very much inside mm. of the frame. James Stewart all of a sudden becomes the voice of society. And, you know, we will bring justice, you know, to you, Brandon and and Philip. So, yeah, it's old, old fashioned in this way, I guess, you know? Mm, yes, but uh, also the, the debate, um of Hitchcock's homophobia, I, I have the feeling that knowing that actually so many homosexuals contributed to this film makes it pretty unique, Apparently right? Lawrence... Lawrence, uh, probably Fairly Granger, Granger. I, I've even read Dahl as well, right? So it's... I think so. It's kind of like, it's, it's a great contribution on their parts. And in this sense, uh, it's really, there's nothing like that in 1940s American cinema or, or even European cinema of the 1940s, right? It's really amazing how, I mean, how much... I don't know if sensuality is a good word, but you mentioned the panting, the closeness. Mm. It really works on you and because of the claustrophobia of the film um, and this intense also their acting styles right they are uh, very they are a bit over the top and when it comes to Dal, uh, fairly grander is of course neurotic and so on that this it's really something unique i don't know if it was ever repeated in a similar mm. with similar mix of coded mm. sexual well, innuendos and kind of in your face uh, kind of also visual elements like um, some people observe like uh, John Dahl takes the the gloves 
out of out of uh, Shirley yeah. Granger's hands, yes, which yes, is yes, like yes, yes. taking off a condom, and so you yeah. know you can, you can have this all this kind of. Uh, and also the, the the image of of the strangled man. It's also uh, you know this image of some kind of release. You know, uh, of course right. it's death, right. but death is almost the same as yeah. orgasm, right? So it's, yeah. Although it's I, I don't buy I don't the the condom argument because mm-hmm. I don't think that in gay culture pre AIDS condoms were ah, very much in use. That's a good point. <laughs> that's that's another. But but yes, I did I did read this. However, um, you know this is. <laughs> this movie is impossible to recreate in a way because it's simply you cannot recreate this level of artful repression Mm, you know exactly this is this is you know centuries of of very specific thinking about homosexuality that was completely disconnected from this sort of democratic aspiration oh let's become part and parcel of society you know let's it's not about equality you know it's it's exactly what what Camille Paglia was describing when she was writing about Oscar Wilde it was this sort of rarefied rare you know like like academic like platonic terms unity of a group that here is defined by their aesthetic taste you know basically they're apart from society you know Mm -hmm. because because their their difference their sexual difference makes them brings them apart from the society Mm -hmm. but it's not like brandon and i don't think that brandon and philip would be you know like um uh, arguing for marriage equality, mm. you know, they are simply outside of those norms, and this is a completely antiquated. And above them, in a way. Above right. them, of course, so. and it's it's impossible to, to you know to mm-hmm. sort mm-hmm. of uh, put this 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 idea against current uh, notions, you know, of, of equality. Of mm-hmm. uh, it's it's all wonderful, but it's simply not of this uh, not of this world. So uh, <laughs> the funny thing is that for me, the women in the film are um, probably more um, like they are the, they represent the real world in a way you know like when Joan Chandler comes in she's more savvy about what's happening you know about how Brandon you know manipulates people for example mm-hmm. uh, I love the moment by the way the, the most heterosexual moment in the film is when Joan Chandler and the guy who plays Kenneth another waspy name oh hello Kenneth hello Joanne uh, you know when when they are left finally alone and they are very awkward because they used to be together now she's with David they don't know yet that David you know is out of the picture um, and they have this little awkward moment and he says okay so how how should we proceed now you know and it's a very sweet moment because you can see that there are, these are two very intelligent mm-hmm. heterosexual people very classy who know how to navigate those and strange don't waters. play the kind of games that our exactly. protagonists are playing. They don't they don't play the game and uh, especially Brandon, Brandon played by Jantal, he's purely a, <laughs> he says I'm a creature of whim. He says it in the and this is the best description because he is a creature of whim, he is a creature of wit, he is a creature of sim- symmetry and he is a creature of the sort of aesthetic order above anything else. And uh, even when he plays him, like, you know, this villainous smile, you mm. know, um, he is both charming and sleazy at the same time. He, he makes, makes me think a little bit of Billy Zane in Titanic. Oh, my but God. He looks yeah. exactly the same. You know, mm. He has the same, mm. has the same smile. Mm. Uh, and next to him, Farley Granger, who will reappear mm. in, in Hitchcock's work. Uh, He's such a hot mess because he's like really destroyed 
Mm. He's he's shaking and uh, I'm not surprised because you know yeah. you, you, meeting Brandon you would you would be would be So shaken, we can also, you know? you know, speculate about their relationship, right? Yeah. Uh, also how yeah. you know, in a nutshell how their bed looks like. Exactly. What what are they doing in the bed, you know? Uh, exactly, so, exactly. Uh, and I have I have one joke which I prepared uh, uh -huh. especially for you because I know that you like Steven Soderbergh's Behind the Candelabra. Yeah, although uh, I just saw the latest one by Steven Soderbergh and it's oh, awful. Magic oh Mike, The Last oh Dance. It's, it's oh, but you, you like Behind the Candelabra, I, I like, which I is like about Liberace, uh, mm -hmm. who, has, like, who had Polish roots, right? Yes. And here, of course, Rope is also a bit about what's happening behind the Candelabra. Because of course, we had two candelabra. Of course, of course, so, of course. So, yeah, so. But the, uh, the thing about the bedroom, uh, there's a long... I mean, uh, we really recommend the book, right? The, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. oh, yeah. There's this issue, issue because in one part, they say that there's one bedroom which implies that they're sleeping together and there's another piece of dialogue which says oh it's in the first bedroom so maybe there are two bedrooms mm -hmm. right and maybe mm -hmm. they are sleeping apart so are they together are they not together and in the book which we absolutely we will put this on our facebook there's um there was a novelization of rope apparently that came out in 1948 and there was uh, uh, the part of the book on the back cover was the little map of the apartment <laughs> that 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 the film takes place in and in this map there's only one bedroom so maybe you know everybody knew that really they were just you know sleeping mm. in in this one in this one bedroom but uh, yeah uh, bedroom is number number six and it's pretty nice spacious new york bedroom i mean who who wouldn't wow. like to live in a pad nowadays like, pad i mean like nowadays this. it would be an apartment for five hard-working people you know or t those two guys would be like in it you know yeah it'll be IT, like yeah. uh, zuckerberg and some, someone, yeah, someone else yeah. so uh, great fun discussing uh, this absolutely movie. no but we were not finished one more thing needs to be mentioned music mm -hmm. music uh, oh yeah, the Poulonks. Yeah, did you? Did you? Uh, I, I I had no idea that it was like a pre pre existing piece. Yeah, right? um, I've um, maybe heard like the the title is precisely the title of the book by by Neil Badmington, Perpetual Movement. Perpetual Movement. Yeah. So like this, and this is the the main um, argument of Professor Badmington um, that this movie, as the Poulonks piece, this movie also pulls us into different directions yeah. because in this piece. For piano and apparently fairly Granger had piano lessons. You know, one hand of a pianist does one thing, gives the the, the rhythm and the, the the bass, let's say, and the other hand does something else. So also there is this um, when tension, tension, and and the movie which also pulls you. And I think we kind of touched upon it, right? That the, on on one hand, uh, Professor Badminton writes, we have closure, kind of Hollywood clarity. After all, because it is a mainstream film. But on the other hand, and what is interesting is the, the, the focus on off-screen space and sounds that uh, Badminton discusses, right? There is this undecidedness, so one bedroom or two, or are they or aren't they, right? This op openness and ambiguity, which also invites repeated screenings. So that's a movie, I think, uh, Rope, I have only this kind of feeling uh, with Rear Window that I can just rewatch it let's say every year right like another the, in one one apartment exactly i like apartment. to enter mm -hmm. these apartments i yeah. just i just feel comfortable which one do you prefer like if you if you <laughs> that's that's apartment strange. yeah like which oh, one no, would you pick to live no, no apartment in europe is amazing yeah? really yeah. okay i mean the, okay. the rear window apartment is like 
cluttered and you can really feel that it's a bachelor's apartment right and like this kind of i don't know this like one square room it's uh-huh. really a square room uh-huh. and i think we never enter the kitchen right In we only apartment. see a sliver of the kitchen we, we see only yeah. how lisa, yeah, when lisa is preparing, is preparing the dinner, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but basically i mean of course it's a great set and but no i think i i was surprised how magnificent I, i didn't remember how magnificent the view ma- uh, and the apartment itself ah, the, i mean yeah. now when i'm i'm 30 and i'm looking to to kind of buy my own or you know <laughs> kind of stuff like that i'm oh my god that's an amazing apartment so so yeah i i would prefer that one and also because uh it it's also it seems to be perfect um for watching movies of course they don't even mm. have a tv set they in don't know because it's 48 yeah they could have yeah right? but they have a but piano they, they have, have a piano, piano but yeah. you know these these curtains right you can right. just close these curtains and you have a perfect cinematic <laughs> mode uh, rear window not really right ah. because he has this very thin right right um, right it's more like a like like a studio apartment i guess yeah, in Europe. A yeah. little, or like a like a bachelor pad i love i love this yeah, phrase this bachelor pad but i will just say that if you like this apartment so much then professor uh bagnington mentions that the f- same set for the apartment reappears in a musical uh, with Doris Day and Rock Hudson called My Dream is Yours <laughs> talking about uh, yeah, which could co- be another meanings. exactly which could be another title for rope but uh, I just want to read just a tiny piece of this book mm-hmm. uh, about this uh, musical piece because it's very interesting I never thought about it mm-hmm. it's a very distinct piece when I when I you know when you listen to it so professor Baddington uh, writes uh, the first section of Francis Poulenc mm-hmm. trois, trois mouvements perpétuels This three-part composition was originally written for the piano in 1918 and performed for the first time by Ricardo Vines in February 1919. Uh, and then a popular phonograph recording was released in 1928. And by the time that Hitchcock's rope appeared to get two, two decades later, Poulenc's name was well known in the United States, where his choral works were more frequently performed than in his native country. And Hitchcock had to pay $1,500 to use this music. So it was mm-hmm. important to him. And since this is modern music. So again, I think mm-hmm. this is this theme of modern Good art, yeah. you know, that all those And little pictures that we see on the wall, they are not like 19th century. They are not like, you know, portrait of Rebecca. Okay. Is there any yeah. other music besides the opening credits? Because that's, that's also very modernist touch. That the we, only thing that, yeah, the only thing that's the melody. We only melody, have, let's yeah. say, diegetic music and and sounds, like sounds of the streets, yeah. right? So another modernist that's true. element. And one last thing. There is an in-joke. First of all, Hitchcock appears, well, there are two, two different versions of where he appears. Yeah, yeah. One um, is one is on the street uh, at the beginning during the opening credits when we see from and from above. Yeah, the other is neon profile. I think. Neon profile yeah. outside of the window, and uh, yeah, so that's another. You know, where did he appear? Yeah, there yeah. or here? You know. So and also there's an in joke because Mrs. Constance Collier was uh, she saw a Cary Grant movie with Ingrid Bergman. With Ingrid Bergman, and it was something and it was great yeah so yeah, something yeah they don't remember so she titles. basically saw yeah. she basically saw notorious yeah. so i guess it's yeah. just like an in-joke oh i think i feel like with this film we could go forever it's yeah. really <laughs> strange and fascinating yes that's a that's a really fantastic film and all our conversation is almost as long as the movie really no no i mean just one hour two minutes wow so. okay so, okay yeah. okay uh-huh. okay so we will we will stop um Uh, I, I'm glad that we talked about this because it's uh, it's an 
odd bird, I yeah. would say this yeah. film, you know. And I liked, the, I, I liked, I, I didn't read the whole book by Professor Bagnuton, but I uh, read l- large sections, and I think it's fantastic. So mm-hmm. hopefully, you will find the book as well, Perpetual Movement. And uh, this was our discussion of rope. Next time we will discuss under Capricorn, under Capricorn, yeah. which I haven't seen in oh, years. Me too. Me too. So it's also a str- very strange. It's a strange transatlantic film. production as well, and there are long takes as well. And uh, Bergman is there, <laughs> so we'll see. It's uh, under the something, uh, <laughs> 1949. I am l- looking forward to uh, to this. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening and please share, uh, please like us, please uh, rate the podcast on iTunes and uh, we will uh, come back. We'll be back. <laughs> In the next episode of Foreign Correspondence. Deeper into Hitchcock. <laughs>